HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick. This is the Heritage Radio Network program. And uh, my guest today on the phone is Park Wildey. He is an associate professor uh, from the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University in Boston. He has a PhD in agricultural economics from Cornell University. And he is the past chair of the Food Safety and Nutrition Section of the Agriculture and Applied Economics Association and a current member of the Food Forum of the Institute of Medicine. Previously, he worked for the Community Nutrition Institute and for USDA's Economic Research Service. Since 2004, he has run a highly respected blog, U.S. Food Policy, a public interest perspective. Uh, And he also just recently published a book called Food Policy in the United States. And it is that which we will be wonking out to today. Welcome to the program, Park. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much. Um, So first of all, give us a little sense of what what your work and interests are and um, why you wrote this book, Food Policy in the United States. Right. Well, For about 10 years, I've been teaching a class to graduate students here at Tufts University about food policy issues, and I thought it would be a good chance to share it with a a larger audience. So this book, for people who care about the food system, uh, care about things like environmental sustainability and about food safety and about having adequate food for low-income Americans, um, but get lost in the details, this, this book serves as a bit of a primer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you sent me a couple of chapters, rather one long original you know, first chapter, and I, I, I just totally loved it. It's a great. It's really, really great because it's so readable. 
Um, and you make everything so clear. It's like even if you don't really know much to start with, you're really going to end up learning a lot from reading the book. So I, I enjoyed reading it. And um, prior to our conversation today, we had a conversation that sort of touched on some of the themes of the book. But I thought that we would start with, um, because you talk about it a lot, is, is competition um, and sort of the capitalist model versus having government intervention in food policy. Like how do you draw the balance? And so I wanted to like start with the whole idea of competition. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it distorting? Is it desirable? What What do we want from competition to do for our food policy, and what are the bad things about it? Right. That, that, that's a great question, because I think for people who care about food policy, if you're involved in advocacy for the local food movement, for example, it's easy to think about what government should do, but I think it's worthwhile for people to think also about how, how different markets and work and when they do good things and bad things. So mm-hmm. in general, everybody, everybody hopes for competitive markets, but competitive markets bring some troubles too. So you think about farmers who are selling their crop on a spot market in a, in a particular year and their, their prices they face fluctuate up or down. Part of what makes farm life difficult is, is that they are subject to competitive markets. And so when you think about competition and you think about monopoly, there's something good and bad um, from kind of a public interest perspective about each of these. Yeah, absolutely. So how much do you think a government should have a hand in regulating competition? So for instance, like when we talk about, um, if you want to talk about regulating competition and you talk about inputs into what makes farming you know, what makes a farm farm. Um, <laughs> like, so the price of corn fluctuates wildly, right? And right. that has a huge impact on livestock farming. So should the government be putting a price ceiling on those corn prices? Or is it fair? Is it better to just let the market go where it goes and farmers be damned? They'll get their time in the sun, you know, five years from now when the prices drop. Right. No, well, I fall somewhere between those those two options that, that you offered. <laughs> no, I'm a- I'm a, I'm a card-carrying economist, so, so you, you can kind of expect me to say good things about our markets and, and how well they serve at their best, how well they serve the public interest. But I'm not a lazy fair guy either. You know, I, I, I recognize lots of situations in which the government has to get involved. Um, if it were just pure unregulated markets, really our, our environmental situation would be a disaster, food safety would be a disaster. If, if it weren't for the role of the government in some of these markets, um, with a sense of restraint, but some role, um, then we, we would really be in trouble. Oh, there's no, <laughs> there's no question about that. I mean, I'm sure you've been following the whole thing of like the new poultry inspection plan that's being proposed in which the poultry industry would basically be inspecting itself while there would be, you know, the odd uh, FSIS inspector swabbing a bird or two here and there. Um, doesn't sound like a great way to ensure food safety for the for the consumer. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me um, and was very interesting in, in that first chapter that I read is, is the idea of monopoly and monopoly in some cases being a good thing. For example, it's an incentive to invest heavily in research and development. And yet on the other side of that, we have Monsanto as a great example of what happens when a seed company owns a monopoly and maybe the de- results are not as desirable as we might want. So where right. does, how does that, you know, let's talk that out a little bit. Yes, yeah, so I think by, by in general, pe- people think, hey, the competition is when markets are working well. Monopoly is when certain companies have, have on their own grown too big and are, are able to set prices and uh, perhaps to the disadvantage of consumers and to the disadvantage of the farmers. Um, but you think about something like Monsanto and 
what makes the market that Monsanto operates in tick is that the government helps them protect a certain degree of market power, of, of not quite monopoly, but close to monopoly. Yeah. Um, and the, the government does this because they want to provide an incentive to large companies to do technological innovation. And so by offering patents, you know, everybody thinks patents offer people a right to produce something, but that's not really their purpose. Their purpose is to offer you the right to prevent others from producing it, right? So it gives you a legal right to keep other people from, from competing with you uh-huh. in the other thing that you have a patent right for. And um, the logic is that the government couldn't afford to pay all the R&D expenses on its own. You know, we've got a budget crisis. And so um, they, they they offer these patent rights instead. And, and governments around the world have done that for a couple hundred years. Um, but when you, when you think about the consequences in the case of food inputs, like the seeds, uh, then sometimes I think there's reasonable questions about whether this is really working in the public interest. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't see why, uh, why healthy competition from outside players would be uh, just as effective in spurring a company on to further research and development. It seems to me that that being uh, granted a patent and cornering a market the way Monsanto has, has let them just kind of, you know, they own this piece of the property and they're not going to let anybody else have it. And they're not really doing much to actually develop, um, or at least I'm not seeing in the pipeline, uh, new products that are beyond what we've already seen for the last 15 years, which are already running out of their effectiveness. And that would be herbicide-resistant and pesticide-resistant strains of, you know, the various commodity crops. And so, like, why wouldn't, I mean, why wouldn't more competition between Monsanto, Syngenta, et cetera, be better uh, than less? So th- I, that's, the, that's, the, that's the alternative. That's the alternative to having patents drive our technological innovation. Um, the question that arises, though, is uh, are we going to just have less investment in this type of research, or um, is the government going to fund it directly? It, it used to be that public sector research had a larger fraction of the total pie in research on agricultural technologies. Uh, and in the United States, at least, that's declined. You know, the, the, the large part of the innovation and the investment is, is private sector now. Mm. And so it would require rebuilding something that we've either lost or are at least in, at risk of losing um, if, if you were going to give up on the patent rights as the motivation. Right. It's, this is a really, it's a, it's a naughty question. It's a, you know, it's difficult to, um, to, to unpack this completely. But let's, let's move on because there was a piece of, um, there was sort of a list that you uh, created about competitive markets um, and market failures. So government institutions should enact policies to remedy market failures, which are particular circumstances in which markets fail to serve the public interest. I'm quoting from the book. Um, and among those things that you cite are the insufficient public goods, which are goods that are non-excludable. Anybody can use them. Externalities in which one actor affects the interest of another actor through some non-market mechanism. We'll have to ask what that is. Um, imperfect information in which one some economic actors lack the information they need to defend their economic interests and monopoly or oligopoly in which a goods production is limited to one actor, such as we were just talking about with Monsanto Syngenta, who thereby gain the power to choose non-competitive prices and production quality. So those are all examples of market failures. Can we talk a little bit about um, what those various categories mean and how they uh, how they offer correction, shall we say, to markets? Like, what are when right. when these uh, when these things are cited? Like, what happens then? 
right. So that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the list. And, uh, you know, I should say about this way of looking at the world um, that th- this is contested, right? Th- this economist's way of looking at the world is not the only sensible way of looking at the world. Oh, come on. And, and, Don't and burst for, my bubble, Park. <laughs> You're well, at a university. I thought you knew I, everything. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to make 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 sure that I that that you know that I see the, that I acknowledge the weaknesses of this also. Okay. But I think everybody, e- even if you've got a different vision of what our society is that, than this particular market perspective, um, it's worth understanding the logic and yes. the the logic of of the, that list of market failures that you just gave is that much of the time we really ought to give some deference to markets that we ought to let markets do their thing. They're part of what's brought us our prosperity, right? And that, that we shouldn't muck around with them unless we've carefully thought through exactly what is the reason to do so. And um, the, the reasons include environmental problems like externalities is the formal name for it, but it's mm-hmm. when, whenever um, people in the farm country uh, overuse overuse chemicals and the chemicals end up in the water, they're not really paying for the cost of that. That's an example right. of the next quality. And imperfect information, I think, explains a lot of the reasons why government gets involved in the food system. I, I sometimes imagine, suppose we had these magic glasses that let us see contaminated food, right? Suppose in these magic, they're like Google glasses, right? right. The, the contamination shows up in pink. Um, so as you go through the store and you're looking at the meat, you can see the contamination. Um, if, if we had that type of glasses, there wouldn't even need to be food safety regulations, right? Because the store would know, hey, I'm not going to be able to sell any of this contaminated meat because people are going to see it, right? right. Uh, if, if, in, in that sense, um, information failures are at the heart of a lot of the things that go wrong in the food system, including why is our food unhealthy or why is our food not safe? You know? uh-huh. um, and so the, these are um, on the list of market failures that every card-carrying economist recognizes as, as potential reasons for the government to get involved. Right. So if, if this is useful to know if you're ever in an argument with an economist. Right? <laughs> that, that, that they're, they're saying, uh, oh, we can't do that. That's the road to socialism, right? Uh, it's good to know that even even in the sort of traditional economic perspective on these things, that 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 there's a good logic for um, having the government be involved in certain circumstances. In certain circumstances. Okay, Joe, let's take a quick break uh, for a sponsor drop. Park, stay on the line with us, and we'll be right back with Professor Park Wilde from Tufts University, wonking out about food policy in the United States. Stay tuned. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. 
We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the line with me is Professor Park Wilde from Tufts University. We're talking about United States food policy from an economist's point of view, um, which I have a very imperfect understanding of just in general. But um, I wanted to move on about, um, because one of the things that struck me in that chapter that we didn't get a chance to talk about in terms of competition, monopolies, etc., and that was lobbying, the impact of lobbying on uh, food policy. And you mentioned um, something called the Center for Responsive Politics, which provides insight into how legislators and government agencies are lobbied, slash funded, slash influenced by corporations. And somehow that just doesn't seem to have worked out that well for us. So can we talk a little bit about the influence of, um, you know, large uh, sort of food uh, corporation, corporate interests having an impact on how ultimately food policy plays out in the United States uh, legislative body? Right. And, you know, I'm, 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 in many ways, I'm very proud of American democracy, but there's things about it that don't, don't work perfectly. And <laughs> one, one, one of them is the, this uh, sense that, that um, sort of concentrated, economically powerful interests have more influence than regular folks do. And what, one of the mechanisms is um, this ability to, to lobby legislators and to sort of have people's ear more, more than regular folks have. And there's a long tradition of studying wh- why that is. If, if you think about how, all of us are affected by the food system, yeah. but we're each affected in, as individuals in, in a small way each. So even though there's 300 million of us, we, we don't each have our whole livelihoods at stage every time a particular food safety regulation comes up or right. a nutrition policy regulation comes up. But for the companies involved, their whole livelihood is at stake. And so they, they, it's worth their while to make some effort to, to hire some folks to, to influence public policy in a direction that's favorable. And uh, so my students enjoy this exercise of, of using this online utility provided nicely by the Center for Responsive Politics and, and uh, following through who, who, what, what, what industries are supporting uh, which, which legislators, because some of that has been um, made available under freedom of information rules and is, is shared on, online. Yeah. And so when, when, industry, when industry gets involved in legislation and lobbies, um, how I'm just curious, like, why it doesn't seem like there's any mechanism to um, sort of control how much influence they have. And is that is that part of the whole Citizens United? I mean, I'm way off base here, but is that part of the Citizens United decision from the Supreme Court that you could just like throw as much money as you want to at somebody? And, you know, if they're playing ball, then you're going to get what you want. It, 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 exactly. So the the um, one of the you know there's a couple of things that keep the government from regulating this more strongly, and one is um, just the politics. You know, for mm-hmm. for some people in government, it actually benefits them to have things set up this way, and so maybe they wouldn't want to vote for it differently. But the other is is genuine First Amendment concerns, and so one of the things that limits people's ability to regulate lobbying is that. Uh, there's a sense that um, if depending if we did, if we wrote the regulation incautiously that that uh, it would infringe freedom of speech, and so that's the back and forth about Citizen United and 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 a whole mm-hmm. long history of of legislation of of uh, court cases. Um, but wh- one thing I would add, and I I point this out, is that e- even though this lobbying is cause for distress because it it means that these moneyed interests have disproportionate 
power in in political decision making. Um, it's also good not to exaggerate. Like if there if there weren't um, so much money in lobbying, there would still be rough and tumble politics. It's it's not like the lobbying is what makes um, politics all bad. It it doesn't cause every problem in politics. Um, people people <laughs> from people people from farm country would still support farm subsidies. People yeah. uh, in, in, in Minnesota would still support food manufacturers, right? The, the, the legislators partly support big business because big business is important in their regional economy. Sure. Um, it's not just about the lobbying, but the lobbying is worth paying attention to. But you would be, I mean, if I were a legislator, I would be looking out for the interests of my, my constituency, regardless of whether uh, a food corporation was throwing gobs of money at me or not. I mean, that's your job. So. Right. In a, in a certain sense, it's like they are responding to a much more narrowly defined interest, which is that of the corporation, particularly even over the needs of the constituency in some cases. I mean, I'm not saying that this is what happens everywhere, but that's the purpose of lobbying, essentially, isn't it? Isn't right. it to narrowly define what that interest is and, and make sure that your interest is served above and beyond anybody else's, including the constituents who voted the person into office? Right. No, that's 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 the goal. And um, <laughs> that doesn't now, seem like a good interest, thing to me, Park. <laughs> public interest organizations also hire lobbyists, um, but they're able to fund them on a smaller scale than than than, for example. Well, the yeah, because they're nonprofits in general. That, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. Um, well, I want to move on to the from the lobbying thing. I'm just like trying to, you know, it's the old radical me, like, oh yes, big brother, you know, big business, blah blah blah. But actually, I'm kind of a supporter of many uh, big businesses just for that very reason, which is that they employ a lot of people, and we kind of need that. Sure. Um, but one thing I did want to get into with you is, um, you know, as uh, sort of when we talk about monopolies, competition, etc., one of the things that has struck me over and over again in the five years that I've been doing this radio program is that when we talk about uh, making a more regionalized food system, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the biggest stumbling block is transportation and distribution. And it's a fact that in order to qualify as a, you know, as a um, participant in a broadline distributor like Cisco or U.S. Uh, Foods or something like that, you have to have a certain amount of volume already. And so that is sort of pre-selected, like only the big guys get to be distributed by the big broadline distributors. And that really depresses um, smaller local producers. And I wondered, you know, what's the answer to that conundrum? Like, how is that ever going to change? Is that not right. regulated in any way by government? There's no, you know, I don't see any sort of rise in infrastructure or interest in creating more competition in the market from, uh, from the point of view of smaller producers. Right. So, boy, that, that's a hard set of questions to answer because, you know, diff different, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> different parts of our food system are more and less concentrated. So there, there's parts of the U.S. food economy that are very highly competitive. Mm -hmm. and, and, in fact, lots of the distress in them comes not from market power, but just from how rough it is to be a competitor. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones you listed, for example, on food service distribution, uh, th th that's a more concentrated industry. Um, food retailing has grown more concentrated. Breakfast cereals is concentrated. Yes. Um, cer certain of these industries are, are, are fairly, highly, fairly highly concentrated. Yeah, they're highly concentrated. But my point is, is that like, that then creates almost like a mon monopolistic situation because you can't compete if you can't get distribution. 
Right. So the distribution part of it, which again, very concentrated in three or four companies, Cisco, US Foods, I forget what the other brands are, but these are the guys who are really doing most of the heavy lifting when it comes to moving food around from point A to point B in this country. And especially from regionalized production areas like say meat from the Midwest, from, you know, Colorado or, you know, Iowa or whatever coming to the East Coast. Like you can't, unless you're, uh, you know, producing a certain volume, you, you can't get onto that distribution truck. And that right. that immediately depresses any opportunity for a smaller producer to get into the business in any meaningful way, don't you think? Right. So there's a mid-scale of production that really interests me. Uh-huh. And the, the reason it interests me is because because um, I've followed this back and forth for a long time. So you know the sort of advocates of the con- current conventional food system say the, the reason why things are the way they are isn't because of monopoly power, but it's because of efficiency, right? Yes. This, this is bringing good things and better food to... to At lower uh, prices. And um, the response is that um, if, you're a small, if you're advocating a, a healthier local food economy, that um, this is all serving us very badly, that, that, um, that having that kind of scale is, is wrong. It's, it's economically unhealthy. Uh-huh. And um, uh, the, in between, because I think that there are economies of scale, that if you're, if you're transporting watermelons on a pickup truck, um, pickup trucks are not environmentally efficient. They're right. not even, in terms of resource use, the right way to, to be getting food from one, one place to another. And um, so you need a certain scale in order to be able to use um, whole train cars and to be able to use um, ships and to be able to use uh, um, uh, tractor trailers. Right. Things that have lower resource costs per unit of food transported. And so how big, how big does a local producer have to be to be efficient in that sense? And the answer is, for a really quaint small local farm, they, they might have to grow in order to be efficient that way. Um, but that within the local food economy, you could still have a competitive market of, of mid-sized companies that, you know, and when I say company, I mean like family farms, even yeah. count, count as a business. And um, that, 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 that they would, that you don't have to be the scale of cargo to be efficient. You, you can be efficient at a, at a, at a regional scale. Um, and I think there's something really healthy in that mid-level of, of economic scale. I think so too. I, it's just that I don't see, I see a dearth of that mid-level scale. I see that, you know, it's very uh, time-consuming, impractical, and expensive for farmers even to get stuff product to farmers markets and that there's been, you know, relatively little investment either on the state level or the regional level in creating um, any kind of production warehouse aggregation, warehouse, you know, you know, sort of transportation hub, anything like that doesn't really... Uh, seem to be um, taking place in any meaningful way, uh, at least that I've observed. And I wondered why, if you say that there are economies of scale that can be lucrative and efficient at that mid-level scale, I don't see any um, movement towards investment or or creating uh, that kind of mid-level market. Right. The, the, there is a sense that the agricultural economy has been hollowed out over the years with mm-hmm. beca- becoming a nation of a few large farms and a whole lot of very small farms, and um, and but but there's a lot of I, w- I would give a, overall a slightly more hopeful summary just because there's been a huge amount of innovation. There's been innovation in terms of um, local farmers markets moving into things like food hubs, regional food hubs that that, yeah. that 
serve to nurture companies at that scale. But also I think some of the major food retailers have, have put more effort into making their distribution systems accessible to farmers at that mid-scale. Mm. Um, they still have trouble dealing with very small farmers, but, but to farmers at that mid-scale, I think there's, there's been some new opportunities in recent years. Well, that is encouraging. Unfortunately, I know you have to teach a class at 1230, <laughs> and it's 1227. So I want to take the last couple of minutes here for people to hear a little bit more about your book and about the blog. So do you want to talk a little sure. bit about that? Sure. No, thanks for asking. And, sure. and so the book, the book is called Food Policy in the United States. And um, I, 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 it's, you know, it's marketed somewhat as a textbook, but I, I hope it's the thing that not just students who've been forced to read it will read, but, but rather that people who care about the food system have been following the back and forth. This isn't the book for somebody who, who's – the book does not take sides on all of the issues of the day, but rather it serves to point you towards resources um, where you could get more information about it. So, right. for example, every, every chart has a, a little, little uh, key underneath it that says where, where to get more information on this type of data. Yeah, no, it was great. And there are tables of, uh, it, where you can see what chapter discusses what issue that you bring up and, you know, and, and also a glossary of terms and acronyms. I found it really, really user friendly. And, oh, that's, uh, that's what I was hoping. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, as somebody who's, um, you know, I don't have uh, much of an education myself, like I didn't go to college. So it's, you know, I thought, oh, God, a textbook about economics. Oh, my God. <laughs> But it was actually right. incredibly readable and, and really very informative. So I, I totally recommend it. And it just came out last fall, right? That's correct. Uh, last spring, yep. Last spring. And so, and then you also have a blog, which I thought was terrific. That's called uh, U.S. Food Policy, a Public Interest Perspective. What kind of things did you discuss on that? Right. So uh, a lot of the issues covered in the book, but with more of a timely hook. And uh-huh. so, so it's, it's a nice place to follow news and links of the day connected to food policy controversies. Right. Well, it's uh, really interesting. I'm definitely putting that as a bookmark in my daily reading or at least weekly reading. And I want to thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, so please, uh, you know, I hope you'll come back. We'll talk about more. We barely, as I suspected, barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to get to with you. But uh, there will be another opportunity, I hope. And thanks so much for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. Sure, I enjoyed talking to you. Great. Thanks, Park. And thank you to my sponsor, uh, Root 11 Potato Chips. And thanks to my engineer. And we'll see you next week with uh, Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be talking about animal agriculture. Surprise, surprise. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.